Welcome to Recalculating Adventist Life Now. I'm Skip Bell, your host. The focus today is muscular Christianity and its relationship with the political engagement of conservative evangelicalism. My guest is Heidi Olson Campbell. Heidi is in the process of earning her PhD in history at Baylor University, married, mother to, active in her Southwestern Adventist University community. Her studies and service engage her in issues of church history. She has had the opportunity to explore gender roles in evangelicalism and the concurrent yielding of political power. Interesting. So welcome, Heidi. Glad to be here. Thanks so much for inviting me. Conservative white evangelicalism, Christian nationalism, American masculinity, political action. That's a lot of territory to get our minds around. So we kind of need to set the direction for our conversation by understanding our use of those terms. So Heidi, first, what is meant by conservative white evangelicalism? So this is a hotly debated term and one that may, is pretty challenging to define. Um, the classical definition for evangelicalism is called the Bebbington Quadrilateral. It's actually just named after a gentleman, a professor in England named Dr. Bebbington, and um, it has four different points, and that's why it's called a quadrilateral. Um, and he describes it as ABCC, so that you can remember it with that acronym. First of all, the A stands for activism, and then the B stands for biblicism. The C, and this is always the one that I have a hard time saying, crucicentrism, which means mm. the cross is central, that Jesus' cross is central to the Christianity. And then the last C is conversionism, or um, in other words, that you're going out and proselytizing, you're e evangelizing people, and you believe that a conversion experience is important. Um, that is the classical definition of what evangelical is. But conservative white evangelicalism obviously is a little bit more narrow. And usually what we think of, you can see so many books right now actually being published with the title about evangelicalism. And usually they're referring more narrowly to conservative white evangelicalism. And in its current iteration, um, it usually refers to neo-evangelicals that grew out of the fundamentalist movement in the 19, early 1900s, and, um, and it grew, it's, the neo-evangelicalisms grew out of Billy Graham's kind of efforts, too. So it's um, more of a narrow field than the broader sense of evangelicalism, and that's one of the reasons it's a hotly debated term at the moment. Now, that's interesting. Um to examine how that has progressed in our history. Now, you're a lifelong committed Adventist Christian. Uh, most of our listeners share uh, at least a knowledge of what that means, fairly conservative um, in our Protestant um, Christian faith. You're deeply engaged in church service. You're a student of history wife and mother who's very supportive of, of mission. Adventist mission has been a part of your life. You've spent considerable years living in mission service outside of America. 
I'm not sure I like the phrase mission uh, service in that context. You've worked across cultures. My reflection is you're deeply involved in the Adventist faith community. You have significant concerns. Much of your concern seems to me to revolve around the ideas of Christian nationalism and its presence. What, what can you, uh, how can you go about helping us understand that term, Christian nationalism? Well, like I said, that all these de- definitions, you're asking me the hard questions, I'm afraid. <laughs> yeah. Um, but part of my concerns about Christian nationalism do derive from having lived outside the United States a significant portion of my life. When I was a child, I grew up, um, my father uh, worked for the Adventist Church as a treasurer overseas outside the United States. And then later as an adult, I also worked outside the United States. When I was a child, um, I always kind of questioned my nationalism because, or my what nation I even belonged to because I had lived so long outside um, the United States. Um, mm-hmm. But Christian nationalism... Um, there's a good book actually right now called that just got published called Taking America Back for God. It's by Andrew L. Whitehead and Samuel L. Perry. It's actually a sociological survey that um, studies people's attitudes and it really delves into Christian nationalism in the United States. Um, but Christian nationalism can be kind of, is kind of the conflation of nationalism and Christianity. So it's combining those two into one um, idea. And it's the assumption that the United States is a Christian nation founded by Christians and divinely inspired. And they generally believe, Christian nationalists generally believe in legislating those religious values and beliefs in the government to make sure that the United States stays a Christian nation. Now, the question that should arise is, is Christian nationalism limited to the United States? Because the concern right now, the dialogue is all about the United States. But Christian nationalism is definitely not limited to the United States. And you can find it with other religions in front of that and nationalism. Like you could even have Muslim nationalism instead of Christian nationalism. So this ideology is not limited to the United States by any means, um, even though that is... um, the focus right now in the United States and perhaps the world as well. And another question is uh, to raise is, are all Christian nationalists evangelical or even Christians? And the answer is no on that one too. They're not maybe Christians as we traditionally view them. There are Christian nationalists that are Catholic or mainline Protestant or some that don't even attend church. Um, but there is an inherent danger in Christian nationalism. There's a professor at Georgetown called Paul, named Paul D. Miller, and he defined Christian nationalism as a form of idolatry. Christian nationalism become, ends up becoming a religion. So there's a difference between patriotism and Christian nationalism. The Bible talks a lot about um, how we should pay our taxes, right? Jesus even told us in Matthew 22 that you should re- render to Caesar what is Caesar, and so you should definitely pay your taxes, and you should obey the government. And first, my daughter right now is doing Bible experience in Pathfinders, where you memorize books in the Bible, and she's memorizing First Peter and First Peter two. So I've heard this text a lot of times recently, 
and um, about obeying the government as long as it doesn't transgress God's law. We should definitely do that. Um, we should pray for our government officials. But the problem is when our nation becomes part of our Christianity and it um, almost transcends our citizenship in heaven. Because like Philippians 3.2 says, our citizenship is in heaven, not on earth. And in Christian nationalism, oftentimes we forget that that is the case. And the other dangers is that it's often dangerous because it excludes those who don't fit into it narrowly. So Christian so nationalism... Yeah, go ahead, sorry. Yeah, so there are some challenges of Christian nationalism. I, I kind of hear you describing its root in the context of identifying our history uh, as a country and the merger with Christian thought, but there are some challenges. Go ahead. You know, I think you were helping us understand those challenges. I interrupted you. Go ahead, Heidi. Well, having lived extensively outside the United States, um, you learn that people in other countries have other ways of doing things. And sometimes, obviously, especially when you're a foreigner in that country, it can um, be annoying. But you also learn because you have to navigate things that you don't understand what's going on. But slowly and gradually, you learn that they have they have just as legitimate reasons for doing what they're doing as you think is culturally acceptable. And you learn to negotiate around those and recognize that there are other forms of government, other ways of um, treating and talking that are also um, healthy ways and maybe even, and you learn a lot about Christianity um, through that experience. So that was one of the wonderful things about being at, um, overseas is learning how to how other cultures work and um, growing in my Christian faith, in fact, in that experience. But Christian nationalism tends to um, put those people as outsiders and emphasize that our nation is the best instead of recognizing that other nations have good ways of doing ex their experiences. And it focuses, one of the biggest dangers, I think, for missions is that it focuses on this earth, that um, we forget that our citizenship is in heaven and not earth, that um, we don't expect Christian that we don't expect nations to um, embody all our Christian beliefs, and it often it often that one of the dangers is that it attempts to collapse the separation of church and state by not allowing mm. equal participation for those who don't subscribe to the, our beliefs. Mm. Yeah, interesting. Now, how about uh, factors like uh, racism uh, when it comes to nationalism and? Does it have? Does Christian nationalism have any uh, interaction with a challenge uh, of gender roles? Yes, absolutely. Racism is a big issue with Christian nationalism, um, and I think we can see that in dialogue going around, um, especially about some of the protests this summer. Um, and there's been a long history, unfortunately, for evangelicals and Christians in the United States of racism and that we have used, yeah, we have used our nationalism, our Christian nationalism to um, position 
people in minority groups as as outsiders. I remember, so September 11, I'm going to date myself, I remember September 11 quite clearly. And shortly thereafter, I had a friend who's from Sri Lanka, um, originally, ethnically, anyways, and he went to, he was in the Deep South, and he went to a store, a little restaurant, and ordered something. And as he was leaving the restaurant, he had some people get up and start harassing him and say, you're a Muslim, where are you from? I'm going to call the police. I bet you're doing something wrong here. And he said, no, I'm not. Well, you're not, you're just a Muslim. No, I'm a Christian. And then they said, well, where are you from? And started harassing him. Um, that's kind of the negative underside of Christian nationalism that some, can sometimes occur, making assumptions about people that look maybe different than we think they should, or look different than us. Um, and yes, you also mentioned gender, which is actually my major focus is um, in history, is looking at gender issues. Um, Christian nationalism, well not just Christian nationalism, it can also have quite a history of gender roles. And that's sort of because of hi the history of um, muscular Christianity, which you introduced at the very beginning. Um, muscular Christianity and Christian nationalism kind of grew up together. Um, it, up to the, in, during the Victorian era in the 19th century. Um, people, as always has been, the people who occupy most of the pews when you go into an Adventist church or any church in the world, what do they often look like? They're mo mostly women, I guess is the answer yeah. I'm going to. Uh, yes. Most of the people occupying the pews, if you go just about to any denomination in the world, you notice are female. Um, during the Victorian era, and this is the part where I guess I can talk quite a long time. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's during, interesting. Yeah, go ahead. Yeah. Um, during the Victorian era, uh, women, just like they had always been, occupied most of the pews. And during this time, you start seeing the separate spheres idea, where men and women are viewed as having separate spheres. Men are have the public role, women have the private role at home. But during the Victorian era, that slowly, men were viewed as having being corrupted by business and having to do perhaps unchristian things in their business activities. And so that started to move into a view that women, therefore, had a natural proclivity towards spirituality. So women were the spiritual, more spiritual ones than men. And women used that space that they were allowed because women throughout the ages, this is not unique to the Victorian era, um, have always had some agency and wanted to have some voice. Um, I just recently wrote a little bit on Margaret Fell, who's predates this by quite a bit, but was a very early Quaker woman who wrote a, book, a pamphlet called Women Speaking Justified in the 1600s, and was justifying that women had the right to speak in church. They had religious authority. In fact, she said they didn't just have the religious, the right based on the Bible, but they had a mandate from God to speak. Because if they didn't speak, she pointed to Revelation 21 and the bride speaking and saying, come, 
uh, with the with Jesus and so she said that therefore women had to were were the bride of Christ and so they needed to speak they needed to say come Jesus told them to say come and so they needed it to evangelize and it wasn't just uh, anyways women have always wanted to speak and to speak about their faith and the in a Victorian era, women found that space by saying, well, men, if men are corrupted by business and women have the natural spiritual aptitude, then surely we need to share that spiritual aptitude we have in evangelizing. And you see this with Ellen White, actually. She comes kind of at the end of an era of women preachers in the first half of the 19th century. That there In the first half of the 19th century, there were a lot of women that were speaking and um, the Millerite movement actually went and tried to, they tried to recruit women into their movement. And you see this throughout time in Adventist history. Um, I also have been writing about China missions and Adventists, and the Adventist church actually deliberately recruited women to come to uh, China as missionaries because they knew that women were the best evangelists for women, and if they wanted to build a long-lasting church in China, they had to have female missionaries and evangelists and Bible workers. Anyways, I've kind of gone off my topic, sorry. No, <laughs> Pulling no, myself that's, back. That's good. <laughs> uh, but, uh, so, women were out there speaking and were very actively involved. Now, they didn't necessarily, they didn't have the same authority as male ministers, but they were very actively recruiting and evangelizing. That started to culminate in women saying, hey, if we have can speak about religion, obviously we need to, back to the evangelical um, definition, the first letter in that was an A, which stood for activism. Um, women became active, saying we need to change society. So they started working towards, first of all, we have the abolitionist movement. Lots of women were involved in the yes. abolitionist movement. Yes trying to change society for the better. Then that later moved on to the temperance movement that women said mm -hmm. other women are getting beaten up by their husbands and stuff like that that come home drunk. Uh, maybe we need to do something about that. And so we have women start, and obviously those women that had been active in the abolitionist movement, they said if former enslaved people get the right to vote, why don't we have the right to vote? And if we really are so much better at at trying to reform if we are more spiritually elevated than men and we are not corrupted then why don't we have a voice in government um, this experienced unfortunately a backlash in society because people were not ready apparently to give them the equal rights or equal voices and we also have about this time that America is getting stronger as a nation and so we have a rise of imperialism about this time too where America tries to assert its dominance over other countries as well as expanding its borders um, and the Spanish-American War and things like that, World War One eventually and there was concern along with this um, corruption of men concern that part of the corruption is becoming is ca being caused by urbanization and so we need to start building stronger men so that they can go fight and we can expand our borders and become an empire like other nations out there and 
So we need to start having our men get trained to be strong. And Teddy Roosevelt kind of embodies this in the 19th century. And unfortunately, John Wayne later on in the 20th century becomes the embodiment of this uh, muscular Christianity that begins to develop. Because there's this concern that men are becoming too feminine and there's concerns that the religion is too feminized because people start looking around the pews and yes again they noticed that mainly women were occupying the pews not men and so there was concerns that how do we recruit men back into the church well clearly religion must be too feminized and so we need to reassert that women need to be silent in church and we need to um, have again men as the clear leaders of the church and again, all these kinds of ideas get all wrapped up into a bundle because, of course, people are complicated and multiple ideas can kind of flow at the same time. And we have the rise of the YMCA and Boy Scouts and the idea that men should be strong, have uh, fight for the weak and the idea of justice and order but not always necessarily moral. Because I think even back then, people knew that um, empire wasn't necessarily always a very moral thing, that there mm -hmm. could be bad things that could come along with it. So, now, yeah, these all get kind of combined into one package. Yeah, so Heidi, the, when we say muscular Christianity, it almost sounds like it's kind of a... Uh, uh, backlash or reaction to or response from, and, and Christianity began to have these significant voices away from um, the idea that spirituality was feminine too much. And this term I hear, complementarianism, did that surface from that same emphasis? Yes. So complementarianism is an idea that has appeared many times throughout church, uh, Christian history. It's not unique to this time period, but it does, again, um, get a bigger role, I guess you could say. Mm -hmm. um, it's the idea that men, women and men are equal but have different responsibilities. And mm -hmm. you can actually kind of trace it back to the Reformation. And in some ways, complementarianism started out as a positive idea. Um, but it, for, because it pointed out the idea that men and women are equal. Um, but of course women always ended up with the subordinated role and men were considered the head and are still in complementarianism. Men are the head and women are the subordinate one to men. And actually complementarianism actually comes from Calvinism. And it's the idea that women were created as subordinate to men. Um, this kind of chain is a shift in ideas from earlier ideas that women were subordinated because they were the mechanism for Adam's fall. Mm -hmm. And the danger, the complicated part about this, I guess, is that um, with the idea of women being the object of God's of Adam's fall, rather, that meant that women could claim that at the cross, and women were claiming about this time in the 19th century um, as part of the holiness movement, and that women, that at the cross, when Christ died, that meant that the subordination was ended because the with that, sin was eradicated and that Christ had eradicated the differences between women and men at that point. Mm -hmm. And complementarianism 
reasserted the idea that Calvinism, the Calvinist idea that women were created as subordinate to men, and so therefore they were always subordinate to men, not, uh, so the cross did not eradicate that subordination. Now, we have seen in the uh, American context, at least, and it's probably not uh, limited to the American context, uh, <clears throat> things like promise keepers and other masculine movements and evangelicalism have really found root. Um, in what ways has masculine power, and maybe maybe I, I would like you to critique if if I say white masculine power, been specifically identified with what we're experiencing today as American evangelicalism. This idea of masculine power, that there is a special place where it's white masculine power, and uh, that needs critiquing. You are a historian, and you are far more familiar with this than I am. But I kind of worry that white masculine power has been specifically identified and given empowerment uh, with American evangelicalism. Uh, I'm just kind of reflecting on that, Heidi. Oh, yes, you're absolutely right. Um, this is part of the problem, and this is where the racism comes in, of course, that it in the United States. Now, admittedly, complementarianism is not far not limited to the United States. It's mm -hmm. an issue all over the world. Even So Adventism historically is Arminianist, not Calvinist. But complementarianism nonetheless has made huge inroads into the Adventist church. This is not just the case for the Adventist church, it's for other denominations that also have Arminianist roots like Adventism. And so, yes, it's a huge issue every many different places. Um, but, yes, if we're talking specifically about the United States, complementarianism does kind of get combined um, with white masculine power specifically. Um, because And it creates kind of a hierarchy of beings and um, that there's an order in society that whites are at the top and then men are white men are at the top and white women i guess the white women's place is always kind of nebulous and sometimes they get shifted around to lower positions and anyways back and forth and then um and that has been used for racism so to justify racism now so it, it is, is a danger yeah uh it seems like the biblical account of the good news of the gospel, do you see it in some way being replaced by this um, vision of rugged masculinity? Yes. Um, the challenge is the good news of the gospel is that all are equal, right? Mm -hmm. That we, we under in Christ's eyes, all of us, are the same and that Christ doesn't it doesn't place one ethnicity I mean Christ makes that pretty clear in his it, throughout the Gospels and throughout the New Testament that it doesn't matter where you're from or what your status is that all are equal in Christ's eyes mm -hmm. and when we start placing a hierarchy there's always a danger of 
once you start a hierarchy, you have lost that point in the Bible. You have lost the good news that um, when Christ comes, that and even before that, that in Christ's eyes, that we are all brothers and sisters, and mm -hmm. that we need to embrace that brotherhood and sisterhood and to be a family instead of um, trying to place some people above others. So yes, it's definitely impinges upon that. And um, one of my concerns about the positing rugged masculinity or placing men as more important potentially than women um, in evangelism is that our church has been strongest when everybody is working together to um, try to reach others. Mm -hmm. And we, uh, yeah, like I said, I did some work on Chinese women and Chinese missionaries in, um, in the first half of the 20th century. And there has been, there was so much evangelism and so much outreach and so much energy in the church that you can see when both men and women were working actively um, to spread the gospel. And when you say, when you devalue somebody's work, um, that that really hurts spreading God's, spreading the gospel. And, and yes. Now, it seems like in our political scene in America, white evangelicals feel highly motivated to be active. And you haven't seen activism as a, um, a difficulty, but it takes on a certain shape. Um, should, we be, should we be concerned about the motivation as we're experiencing it today of, we, of white evangelicals in America to become a potent political force? Should we be concerned? And how do those views of gender, of masculinity surrounding white evangelicalism impact our sense of mission um, as Adventists and our mission engagement. Can you talk to us about that? All right. Um, the first half of the question, at least as I see it, is talking about white evangelicals in America and political activism. And yes, we should be concerned about it. it Obviously, God calls us to do um, as much activism in itself, social activism, and even political activism can be a good thing, right? Mm -hmm. um, slave, act, Christian activists are what helped end slavery in Great Britain, if you look back at Wilbur, uh, William Wilberforce. Um, so there's a, definitely some positives to activism and to wanting to see change and to calling for equality. Um, the danger comes when you start legislating Christianity for other people. And I know that's a kind of a narrow ground to um, tread between how do you be social activists and work in the way that God wants you to work. And obviously this requires a great deal of prayer um, and searching of the Bible. And not just searching the, of the Bible for things you want to see, but things that you don't want to see as well in the Bible. Um, but to be very prayerful and careful as you get engaged. Um, part of the pro challenge comes, what has motivated, when you ask about what's the motivation behind white evangelicals in America becoming so active, part a great deal of it that comes from a feeling of loss, concerns about loss, and loss of 
influence, loss of power, feeling like uh, loss of control. I guess this is what motivates most humans anyways. When we feel loss of control, we get very stressed. Um, and that has happened in America on a large scale. Um, this kind of started, dates back to the 1960s, 1970s, um, where you have the Vietnam War, and then you start with the culture war, war as concerns about um, the civil rights movement, and um, when the, the subsequent also rise of feminine, the feminist movement, the second wave feminists. We had first wave feminists way back in the 1800s. Um, where women and, uh, and people of all ethnicities are calling for equality or greater equality. And so we begin to have the cultural, war, cultural wars during that time period and um, a lot of political activism. Um, the challenge came that, it, that um, we're not necessarily looking at calling for equality for all people, but we're calling for um, assertion of some people being above others, I guess. Mm, yeah. That's really where we have uh, a problem where if some, and it, for Adventists, um, it's particularly concerning because uh, we don't want any impingement on our religious liberty. And so we have to be careful to not legislate um, religion for other people too. So it's kind of a narrow and difficult um, line to tread. You described the word control or feeling a threat from a loss of control. That That is a key issue here, isn't it? This tension and this movement back and forth, it seems, uh, in the area of masculine uh, or muscular uh, Christianity. Uh, that's that's significant, yeah. Well, there are organizations um, who wittingly or unwittingly perhaps promote a masculine theology. Um, do you have any counsel uh, to us regarding how we are responsible congregational leaders or voices in our communities when it comes to DVDs that are circulated, speakers or engaging persons who promote this kind of muscular Christianity. Any counsel for us? Yeah, this is, um, I read a book this summer called Jesus and John Wayne. Now there's parts that uh, might be a little bit um, upsetting for people, but it did really open my eyes to the difficulties of um, and being more sensitive and more concerned about what the underlying theories are that are going on in um, books that you read and in muscular Christianity theology. Um, I, I remember reading quite a few works by s some people that are listed in the book um, as promoting muscular theology um, when I was in high school and college um, and reading books that said that a woman's place was in the house, her first responsibility was for to her husband, her second responsibility was to her children, and even kind of promoting the idea that if a, if a man's career failed, it was the wife's responsibility. Hmm. And now, as many years later, thinking back about some of these books and reading them, I can see 
and having been a pastor's wife and being a missionary, um, I can see some of the dangerous ideas that end up becoming promoted um, by buying into these ideas. There, especially the danger of if you, so any failure of your husband is then your failure, is very toxic for women um, and ends up putting undue so much pressure on women and also opening them up to the possibility of being abused frankly mm-hmm. um because they can then become if a man thinks that all their problems in life um are because their wife was didn't cook good enough food or um didn't clean the house enough or keep the kids quiet um then it ends up yeah opening up a space for women to be physically and sexually abused um so it it's a it has been eye opening to me too, thinking about gender issues. Um, but I do caution people to really investigate and think before they invite or bring DVDs in about what the undergirding philosophy is, um, because nobody wants to open up a space for women to be abused. No pastor would ever knowingly do that, um, and. Pastors want to have a church that's fully engaged. Mm-hmm. Um, and if you tell women that their only role or their most important role is only in their home, um, you lose a lot of that energy for women to do ministry. Want to, mm-hmm. If we really want to reach the world for Christ, we need to have every church member engaged and have every church member recognize that they are important and essential, that God doesn't um that that god doesn't have one church member be more important than another well listen uh this has been you're you've challenged us to think uh to uh to read think and and converse in an area that probably a lot of us as men often we don't give attention to that, and it's very important for all of us to do that. I, I appreciate it. We've been visiting with Heidi Olson Campbell. Heidi, thank you very much. Thank you so much for having me. Blessings on your continued studies and leadership. Listeners, this is Skip Bell. Thanks for joining the conversation today. Until next time, keep thinking, keep believing.